This year marks 25 years since the publication of Jeff Dyer's first novel, The Colour of Memory. The following talk was recorded at the Colours of Memory conference, at which Dyer's work was the focus. Here, Joe Brooker from Birkbeck University of London looks back at The Colour of Memory. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, we're, we're I, I, I almost when preparing this didn't didn't know if people would talk much about the um, the color of memory uh, today, but it, I thought it might be rather um, pushed to the margins. But it, it has actually um, come up a bit, but it will be coming up throughout this paper too. Um, so uh, we've heard a bit about this novel. It's from 1989. It's Jeff Dyer's debut novel. Um, in this novel, the characters go out to play soccer in the park. Midway through the match, I quote, I looked around. The trees around the park were perfectly still, as if time had stopped, as if every second of the afternoon were held in a single moment. Players jumping for the ball, their feet suspended in midair, the goalkeeper's hands rising above their floating hair, the ball hanging over them like a perfect moon. And everything around us, the crease of the corner flag, the wind-sculpted trees, the child's swing at the top of its arc, the water from the drinking fountain bubbling towards the lips of the woman bent down to drink, the cyclist leaning into the curve of the path, a plane stalled in the sky, someone's thrown tennis ball, a small yellow planet in the distance. This is the most extreme instance in the novel of attempting to stop time, to freeze its flow into a moment. Now, Jeff Dyer is surely a writer of the moment, of ecstatic moments in Paris trance, of the ongoing moment of photography. His first novel has the distinction of being about the moment, I think, in two senses at once. It's a book about a historical moment, understanding that word um, as a more circumscribed, specified, punctual version of a historical period. Conjuncture might be another word. <laughs> But it conveys that historical moment through a sequence of moments in the more miniature sense of the word. One of the novel's epigraphs reads, There are happy moments, but no happy periods in history. We might, want to, we might paraphrase that to say that the historical moment of the novel is not happy, but the local transitory moments it snatches from time can be. Uh, I came across The Colour of Memory at the beginning of this century, it'd be about 2000, actually when I was trying to put together a course on British fiction of the 1980s and 1990s. There were some more famous names and titles lined up or available, but I wanted to, something to go very early in the course, while we were still thinking about the 80s and remembering the 80s, to represent something that was hard actually, to find representation of in fiction. An alternative view of the 1980s in Britain, one that wasn't about success and money, even in a satirical way. OK, there were fictions of post-industrial Britain and people struggling to survive, some very good, James Kelman, Pat Barker, and so on, that have their own value. But I was looking for something else which would speak more of an everyday experience of the alternative 1980s, an 80s that I myself could remember from childhood in London, an age of GLC festivals and CND posters, not me in the picture by the way, and C, uh, CND posters. Uh, and in The Colour of Memory I just about found it, 
a novel in which characters go to the country fair in Brockwell Park in 1987, walk around stalls for the Nicaraguan Solidarity Campaign, the anti-apartheid group, and the El Salvador support group, quote, all selling T-shirts and pamphlets, badges and books. The green, black and gold flag of the ANC flutters above Brixton Town Hall. Here was a novel that talked of things I clearly recognised, although at the time the book was set, around 86, 87, I had been too young to experience the era as its characters do with late nights, drugs and alcohol. I was thrilled, for instance, to discover a novel in which, 200 pages in, characters are discussing what they would have liked to do with their lives, and the narrator explains what I'd really like to have been is a third division footballer, a fairly solid player for a team that it tended to end up in the middle of the table each season without ever being close to getting promoted or relegated. That would have suited me nicely. Maybe one lucky cup run that climaxed with a goalless draw at home to Everton before getting hammered 6-0 in the replay at Goodison Park. Just something to tell the kids about. It wasn't the general use of sport as a resource that struck me. Um, sport here, I suppose, a way of describing afresh the narrator's limited horizons, his perhaps very dire-esque desire for uneventfulness. It was the specificity of this imagined vignette. Everton. Uh, I could still recite you most of that Everton team. That's my own Panini sticker book, uh, actually, hence why there's no picture credit on it. Um, who were at their quite brief peak in the years in which the novel takes place. Quite likely a few years later, when the first Howard Kendall era was passed, Dyer wouldn't have mentioned them in this role. So Sport 2 has its temporary conjunctures. Then again, the time of the novel at the turn of the millennium still felt recent. Much of what it described didn't seem to have passed on. Even now... That is somewhat the case, partly because the life described in the novel is more one that tries to stand aside from history, to get out of the way of the steamroller of time, than to chase it into the changes of the future. I think that this novel, as long as it retains people's interest, will invoke a sense of time in a concrete rather than an abstract sense. The idea of a time, that time, the time of your life, a lifetime... The experience of time filled with content or matter or memory until one day, perhaps beyond all our lifetimes, when this experience of London or youth is no longer recognisable, it will finally be historical in another sense. It's Brixton, exotically distant, like the Austin Friars of Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall. I invoke the phrase counting backwards because I'm trying to reach back toward the text and its time, but also, uh, more importantly, perhaps, because that's the central structural action of the novel itself. It is formed of 60 segments, starting 060, ending 000, or 000, with an italicised coda that falls outside the countdown, and an italicised introductory line that's taken from that coda. The count has actually subtly shifted lately, revising the 2012 Canongate reissue. Dyer stripped out an entire long chapter, 030, right in the middle, I suppose, meaning that the remainder are now each one number higher than they were, and the book ends with 001, not 000. 
We don't reach zero hour quite in the new edition then, but otherwise the principle is the same. What does it mean? Why is the novel shaped this way? Uh, the book gives us its own gloss on the principle. We'll, I'll leave that up for a bit We can to, to, to consider. The narrator thinks back to an afternoon in Paris with his friend Freddy. Outside the Pompidou Centre, there was a huge electronic row of numbers. When we started watching, the number was about 370 million. Then with every second that went by, the last digit went down one. Neither of us could work out what the point of it was. Then somebody explained that it was counting down the number of seconds to the year 2000. Freddy thought it was terrific and made a note of the exact number of seconds left. 3763450060. It didn't seem that long at all. In fact, it seemed quite possible that you could just sit there and watch the digits click their way back to a long line of noughts. I like the idea of time getting denuded like that instead of simply piling up. A countdown to nothing, to an apocalypse that would last only for a second. A new kind of time. It was both awe-inspiring and, at the same time, absolutely pointless. Pure anticipation. A few observations on this. One, the whole image of the Pompidou clock is a memory. It's introduced with the words, I thought back to an afternoon a couple of years ago. This is quite a characteristic manoeuvre in a novel which is so explicitly about memory. It's an act of remembering that gives the, the author an extra earlier space in which to spread events and ideas. Uh, two, plainly, this vignette is a commentary on the novel itself. It's as though the narrator is describing the novel while not admitting it, as though he doesn't realise that he exists within a textual structure that is analogous to the clock he's describing. It's logically possible to think that the narrator is aware of the parallel, as the novel is later presented to us as a discovered manuscript in a notebook, but if so, he isn't going to point it out to us. He can let it stand in its own obviousness. And I admit here it's only this week, after all this time, that I noticed that the clock at the moment the characters witness it ends with the digits 060, surely a reference to the novel's own starting point of section 060, but a curiously discreet one tucked away in the official neutral-looking realm of number. Three, the narrator sees a new kind of time in the fact of counting down, not piling up. Reduction, not addition, is the preferred model of temporal organisation that the clock reveals. This countdown to nothing, he says, is empty, yet it also means, quote, pure anticipation, which sounds powerful, a principle of narrative compulsion, or at least of readerly attention. Transfer this to the novel. Why count down from 60 to 0 rather than up from uh, 0 or 1? Well, if we counted up, we wouldn't know how far uh, it was going. Once 060 has reached 059 and 058, it seems likely that we're heading down to zero. Hard to explain this, but it would seem counterintuitive, a willful frustration to organise such a countdown and stop it at 33 or 14. The countdown thus implies a certain knowable form, a scale that quietly communicates itself to the reader from an early stage, 
which Dyer may have wanted precisely to counteract the otherwise relatively non-narrative, apparently formalist quality of the book. As a principle of order, the countdown is arbitrary and abstract. It scarcely contains any meaning or value judgment. It amounts to pure anticipation. Point four, finally, I wonder now, uh, venturing a long shot, very long shot really, whether Frank Kermode was anywhere in the author's thoughts in writing the passage. Probably not, but I'm thinking of Kermode's classic work, The Sense of an Ending, 1966, which, like uh, Dyer, invokes the idea of apocalypse as characteristic of modern thinking about time, and which, in a quite celebrated passage, posits the ticking of a clock as a model for narrative. We provide, he says, a fictional difference between the two sounds. Tick is our word for a physical beginning, tock our word for an end. Commode goes on, The clock's tick-tock I take to be a model of what we call a plot, an organisation that humanises time by giving it form. And the interval between tock and tick represents purely successive, disorganised time of the sort that we need to humanise. So two different kinds of interval, he thinks. Later, I shall be asking whether when tick-tock seems altogether too easily fictional, we do not produce plots containing a good deal of tock-tick. Such a plot is that of Ulysses. Commode seems to say, then, that to break from reassuring tick-tock into the comparatively disorientating movement tock-tick is analogous to a break from conventional narrative into modernism, purely successive, disorganised time. That last phrase might not be a bad description of the time of the colour of memory, though I take it that the clock invoked by Dyer's narrator doesn't go tick-tock or tock-tick, but just tick, 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 or indeed click, 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 which may be to the point, in this novel, the countdown marks time, grants a modicum of purely abstract structure, but doesn't correspond to the narrative back and forth, up and down, implied by Commode's clock. The countdown, I have said, ends at zero, or now one, in the autumn of 1987, about 15 months after the book began. Two characters in a park probably this one, I think, witnessing the aftermath of the great storm of that October, making this one of, and quite likely the first of, a select group of novels to take that meteorological event and make it a narrative event too. The last line of the last section reads, We walked back through the waste ground, fires dying all around us. The book could have ended there, but as I've indicated, there is a coda in italics that takes us, to borrow a phrase from Thomas Pynchon, beyond the zero. In offering an italicised coda that is in some sense slightly exterior to the main narrative, The Colour of Memory echoes another novel that is a more plausible candidate as an influence upon it, Martin Amos's Money. In that earlier novel, 1984, that Coda ties up loose ends as the narrator finds himself back on the outside of the moneyed world from which he's just been ejected. In The Colour of Memory, something different happens in the italics. A narrator describes entering an abandoned apartment belonging to one of the characters, Freddy. Here he finds the notebook in which, supposedly, the whole of the novel we have just read is written. The handwriting, he says, was still unmistakably Freddy's. 
the sentences that follow are those which started the book 250 pages earlier. The pages were bathed in the yellow light of the reading lamp. I read a few phrases at random, flicked through some more pages, and then turned back to the beginning and read the first sentence. In August, it rained all the time. Skipping here and there, impatient to get to the end, I read all the way through, remembering incidents that I had totally forgotten, recognising many episodes, despite their distortions and dislocations. I think this coda may have an unnerving effect on the reader of The Colour of Memory. It takes the whole novel that we've just read, savouring descriptions, observations and jokes, and places it at one remove. The novel of Brixton now is a text within a text, an allegedly found manuscript like that of numerous 18th century novels or Flann O'Brien's The Poor Mouth or many others. It is customary enough to bracket this bracketing, to experience the text within a text primarily as just a text, to forget the factitious framing that started the book with a fictional editor's introduction or the like. In this case, the effect is slightly different as the framing really only emerges at the end. There is a slight wrench, perhaps, in having the main narrative thus distanced from us at the last. <clears throat> More than this, I think Dyer spreads confusion here. We are now to think of the whole narrative as written by Freddy, who was repeatedly and often figured as a main character within it. Freddy was writing Freddy, as a figure in the third person, something of a figure of fun, in fact, who tends to wisecrack his way through scrapes and disappointments. But he's also emotionally acclaimed within the novel, shortly after he's been mugged, as the friend whom the narrator has known the longest, the one whose friendship with unique benevolence exerts no pressure. So, the logic goes, he has written a manuscript notionally narrated by a friend of his, in which he himself emerges as a benign alter ego. The narrator, we might think, is supposed to be based on the very person, the friend of Freddy, who narrates the italicised coda and discovers the manuscript. This last voice, perhaps, is the person who has been fictionalised into Freddy's narrator, which means, in effect, that the same figure would narrate the whole book, first as Freddy's creation, then briefly under his own steam. These textual tangles can get more tangled still with echoes and references between the two narrative zones, but I have always had a feeling that we should not take the novel's coda too literally or fixate too hard on whatever logic it implies, as I have just begun to do. My sense remains that the coda's role is just to destabilise the status of the narrative and to make the narrator's identity float even more uncertainly than it has already done through his anonymity. The role of the narrator, this coda reminds us, is a convenience, a construction. He's not a figure solid enough for us to lean safely upon him. I think that in forging this metafictional frame, Dyer was gesturing towards something he discusses in the more recent preface to the book, the border between fact and fiction, which he wished to trouble and render more martially obscure. Dyer recounts that the novel started in the magazines New Society and The New Statesman as a journalistic text. 
It was commissioned, he writes, he remembers, uh, as something loosely termed the Brixton Diaries, in the hope that the life my friends and I were leading in a particular area of South London at a particular time, the mid to late 1980s, might have an interest that was more than local and personal. Gradually, I saw a way of using and shaping the material in a slightly different way, in a form that would deploy it to better, more personal ends. I invented a sister for myself, or for my narrator, rather, and hopefully more lasting effect. A couple of years ago, I said somewhere that I like to write stuff that is only an inch from life, but all the art is in that inch. The importance of that inch and the fun to be had within it first made itself apparent in these pages. Note that here, looking back after over 20 years, Dyer doesn't draw much distinction between myself and my narrator. He has to remind himself to do it. That is evidence, I think, or suggestive, that the Freddie's manuscript conceit is less a deep structural clue to the narrator's true self, more a piece of deliberate narrative interference aimed at making things less straightforward than they seem. The other function of this conceit, uh, or this twist, I suppose, finally, may be to pluralise and collectivise narration. The notion of the narrator's identity is blurred, spread between the first person of the novel and the figure of Freddy, with his odd intimacy with that narrator, but then uh, even another major character, Steranko, is described as uncannily like the narrator, sharing his tastes and appearance. We may sense that Dyer, moving from the Brixton Diaries to a more deliberately literary experiment, tried to diffuse himself. Even while writing a book that seems as though it reflects himself, his life, his attitudes, he's taken the precaution of spreading himself across characters, creating decoys, and the effect may in part be to suggest that the protagonist is less one individual than a whole community or group. I am reminded of Jonathan Lethem's insistence uh, when discussing his own fictional urban reverie, The Fortress of Solitude, that the novel had not in fact been drawn just from personal memories, but from the anecdotes of a whole community of witnesses. The characters, he said, are receptacles for urban law. No one of them maps to any other one person. Rather, there are dozens of people who rightly feel a claim on those characters because they see parts of themselves and their experiences reflected in those characters. So I think I see something like that here. Dyer dedicated the book to my South London friends, and in the novel, he writes of a time in life when, quote, when you do not form friendships but are formed by them, when there is no difference between having good friends and being a good friend. Perhaps in writing a novel that seemed to express himself, he also wanted to smudge the boundaries of self. And to name one last precursor, Virginia Woolf was a London writer of what she called co-consciousness of the invisible threads between people and the mystery of what she called living in each other. In a Woolfian gesture, the colour of memory suggests that sometimes, which might be the best times, we live in and through one another. Thank you.
There's more talks on Dyer from the Colours of Memory conference on podacademy.org, as well as a reading and Q&A with the author. This podcast was produced by me, Joe Barrett, for Pod Academy, with Isabella Grotto.